0: This week we start the exciting adventure of studying the book of Numbers. And how can it not be exciting? The book has a talking donkey in it. It must be exciting, okay? Now we're not going to get there this morning. Uh, We're going to look at a census, but I think even in this census there's plenty of excitement for us to enjoy from God's Word this morning. Uh, So we're going to look a little bit at the book as a whole this morning, but more specifically we're going to look at Numbers chapters 1 and 2. Uh, So if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find the beginning of the passage on page 108, 108. And while you're turning there, let me just offer some background on the author, date, name, and kind of the main theme uh, in the book. The, The prevailing notion among evangelical scholars, and I think this is absolutely correct, is that Moses is the essential author of the first five books of the Bible, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that means that Moses, he's the main author of these books, the main author of Numbers, with potentially a few uh, additions or edits made by others. It's not actually until Numbers chapter 33, verse 2, that we're explicitly told that Moses wrote down Israel's starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. But that shouldn't hinder our understanding that Moses is the author of the book. Uh, Further evidence for Mosaic authorship is readily apparent. If we only consider the fact that over and over again we're told in the book of Numbers that the Lord spoke to Moses. Roughly 40 times we read that phrase in the book of Numbers. It appears in nearly every chapter of the book. The book also seems to be written from the perspective of someone who has a first-hand account of the events described in the book. Perhaps most convincing of all is that in the New Testament, Jesus, who is himself the truth, sees Moses as the author of the first five books of the Bible. Since the book was was mainly written by Moses, most of it must have been written within his lifetime. Numbers was likely written and initially compiled uh, sometime in the 15th century BC with a few divinely inspired edits, additions, and clarifications in the years that followed. We base the date of this book on when the Exodus occurred. For Numbers begins chronicling the history of the people of Israel two years after the exodus and through their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. So we're told in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, that 480 years after the people of Israel came up out of Egypt, Solomon began to reign. Scholars are pretty certain that Solomon's reign began around 967 B.C. So add 480 years to 967 uh, and you get... uh, 1447 or thereabouts. So it seems that the Exodus occurred in the middle of the 15th century B.C. Therefore, the majority of the book would likely dates in that same century. Now, the name that we know the book by, Numbers, it's the English name, uh, comes from the opening, kind of the, the events in the opening chapters of the book. The, the people of Israel are numbered or listed. Uh, Numbers, as it says, the English name, but the book also has a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name of the book is In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness is the name of this book. And the reason for that Hebrew title is pretty plain from the contents of the book. When considering the the content of the book, the the kind of major structural outline and the central themes, we must keep in mind that the book continues a story from the books that precede it. We'll think about this in more detail in a little bit, but for now... Let me simply say that the book of Numbers follows the people of Israel as they prepare to depart Mount Sinai and make their way to the promised land of Canaan. The first 10 chapters or so of the book reflect on Israel's stay at Mount Sinai. The next 11 chapters or so cover Israel's journey to the plains of Moab. And the the last kind of portion of the book recounts significant events in in the plains of Moab. Um, Well, on the one hand... This book is a story of one people, the people of Israel, on their journey to Canaan. On the other hand, the book is really a story of two generations. It is a story which reflects on the Exodus generation under Moses' leadership. Those who were involved in the Exodus, they came out of Egypt. It reflects on the Exodus generation under Moses' leadership and their failure to trust the Lord, to defeat their enemies and enter the promised land of Canaan. This then is, ref- is followed by a reflection on the next generation and whether or not they will be faithful to trust the Lord, to defeat their enemies, and enter the promised land of Canaan. We might summarize the, the message of Numbers in this way. God is faithful to His promises even when His people are faithless. Now We should not walk away from the book of Numbers without marveling at God's patience, grace, and unfailing love toward His people. He is committed to them, even when they fail to be committed to Him. God's patience and grace are not grounds for faithlessness, but for faithfulness. Will the next generation be faithful to God? where the previous generation, the exodus generation, failed. The book of Numbers somewhat closes by leaving that question open. In this sense, the book contains a single ethical call to the people of God in each and every subsequent generation. Will we be faithful or faithless? Now, at at this point, you may be wondering, okay, so how does Numbers fit into the storyline of the Bible? Well, from the beginning, man has been called to be faithful to God, to trust in God. Adam was called to trust in God, but he failed that test. Every person subsequent to him, apart from one, failed that test too. Numbers is a book of failures. Failures which should only serve to heighten our longings for the Savior who would never fail to trust God or to be faithful to Him. Numbers also helps us to anticipate Jesus in the character and figure of Moses. Moses is a faithful leader of God's people, of Israel. But even he fails to lead God's people into the promised land of Canaan. So you see, Jesus is greater than Moses because he did not fail to lead God's people into the promised land. We learn in Numbers that Moses loses an entire generation of people in the wilderness but Jesus as we'll consider tonight in the book of Revelation when Derek preaches to us we'll consider that Jesus does not lose one of all that the Father has given to him the book of Numbers helps us to see our own failures before the Lord as well as to anticipate Jesus Christ who would not sin or fail in the wilderness but conquer our enemies and lead us Home to Heaven. It's a wonderful book. Now with that in mind we turn to study our specific passage this morning. In Numbers chapters 1 and 2, three things take place. God commands Moses and Aaron to conduct a census. Moses and Aaron conduct the census and God describes uh, how his camp is to be arranged, how Israel is to set out in their journey. So if you're taking notes this morning, this will be our outline. The command, the census, and the camp. The command, the census, and the camp. So let's first look at the command. Read Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by father's houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shelemiel the son of Zerushaddai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab. From Issachar, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elishema, the son of Amihu. And from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Petazur. From Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahizer, the son of Mishaddai. From Asher, Pagiel, the son of Ochran From Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel. From Naphtali, Ahir, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Now let's get one one thing kind of straight right away. Um, Those names have only been pronounced correctly once in the history of the world, and that is when God spoke them. Um, These verses, Numbers 1 to 16, recount God's command to Moses and Aaron to take a census Of the people of Israel. God particularly wanted Moses to list the number of men who were 20 and up. They were the men who were able to go to war. In these verses, God even gives Moses instructions on how to efficiently conduct the census. God divides the people of Israel up according to their tribes, and he appoints a census worker, if you will, to collect the necessary information concerning their tribe to deliver to Moses and Aaron. That's the big picture that these verses give us. But we should be careful not to miss several smaller and significant details in these verses. Just consider how the book of Numbers opens there in verse 1. Look at the beginning of verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses... ...in the wilderness of Sinai. Is that not a marvelous statement? That's how the Bible began. The Lord spoke. Our God is a talking God. And He talks with His people... ...because He desires to reveal Himself to them. He tells us about Himself... ...and how we are to order our lives before Him. And perhaps you're thinking to yourself... "Well, wait a minute, the text says He spoke to Moses... How is it that he is talking to his people? That's a good question. Moses was God's chosen mediator. He would relay God's message to God's people. As we see Moses doing over and over again in the Pentateuch. God speaks to his people. Let Let that sink in for a moment. The one who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable speaks to his people. The one who in his very being is full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth speaks to his people. In the ancient world, there were many false gods, but none of them spoke. Ancient worshippers had to guess what their God wanted and what he wanted to say. But the people of Israel, and we as Christians today, know that God has spoken and we know what he has said. And we know what He wants. We know all of this because we have His Word. And because we have Christ. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. God has spoken to us in His Word, and He has spoken to us by His Son. This is how He makes Himself known, and this is how we know Him. He is not silent, for He speaks to His people through His Word and His Son. The Lord spoke to Moses. But the Lord spoke to Moses at a particular time and place. The Lord spoke to Moses about two years after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. It is at this point that we need to remind ourselves that the history recorded in the book of Numbers is the continuation of the history that's already occurred in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. In the book of Genesis, we learn that God created the universe and all that is in it. He even created the first man and the first woman to have fellowship with Him in a beautiful garden. Sadly, Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were thrust out of His presence. Adam and Eve were made to leave that garden. But just before they were made to leave, God made a promise. God promised Adam and Eve that one day a Savior would come from the seed of the woman. He would crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the storyline of the Bible is an outworking of that promise. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't uh, begun attending, feel free to start attending uh, the Biblical Theology class that takes place in the Discipleship Hour at 9.30. They're going to be working through this over the next several weeks. What is this one grand storyline of the Bible? I think it'll help you read your Bible and learn more about Jesus Christ. This is the promise that is being worked out that a seed would come from him, that he would crush the head of the serpent. And as readers, as we kind of read, continue reading through the Pentateuch and through the Bible, we we should be constantly asking ourselves, how will God keep this promise that he makes in Genesis 3.15? Well, as the the book of Genesis unfolds, as an outworking of God's promise to Adam and Eve, we learn that God had begun to form a people for himself. He promised Abraham that he would have descendants as, as numerous as the stars in the sky, God even promises that one of Abraham's offspring would bless the nations. When we read about that in the book of Genesis, we're encouraged. Our hopes are kindled that that God is going to keep His promises to save His people. And as the story moves along, Abraham's offspring multiplies. But then they're enslaved in Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we read about God's suffering. God's people suffering under the burden of Pharaoh's enormous and constant building projects. And in an act of genocide, Pharaoh, he began to kill off all the baby boys of Israel. And as readers of the Bible, this should immediately raise concerns for us. For this endangers God's promise to raise up a Savior from Abraham's offspring. In reading this story, instead of the hope, instead of the hope of the serpent's head being crushed, our hopes of salvation are being crushed. If Israel doesn't exist anymore, then how will God Bring about his promises to save his people from the nations of the earth. Well, God answered the call of the people of Israel in their burdens and distress. He raised up Moses to lead his people out from under Pharaoh's thumb, out of slavery, out of Egypt. God led Israel out of Egypt and to Sinai. And that's the scene where Numbers begins. He was speaking to Moses at the tabernacle. God had previously given Moses the design for the tabernacle, God's earthly tent, his earthly dwelling place. And the tabernacle was where he was speaking to Moses, according to verse 1. And don't fail to miss these small but significant details as Numbers opens. This command to number the men of war, those 20 and up, comes from a God who keeps His promises to His people, who has redeemed them and saved them from Egypt, who speaks to them through a mediator, who gives them His will and His law, and who dwells with them in their very midst, in His tent. The one who gave this command is all that the people of Israel need. God is all that Israel needs as they live between salvation already accomplished and salvation not yet consummated. Salvation in being freed from slavery in Egypt Salvation not yet accomplished. Dwelling, resting in the promised land of Canaan. And our situation is not too dissimilar. Christians have been redeemed from slavery to sin. But we have not yet reached our final salvation in the promised land of heaven. Until that day, we need to live by faith in the Son of God. The one who dwells in our midst by the Spirit. And we, by God's grace, should endeavor to keep His commands. Children, youth. Young adults, I wonder do, do you ever kind of worry and wonder about how things are going to work out? Do you worry about grades, making friends, keeping friends, getting your driver's license? Your parents might be worried about that one. Um, what, about, um, what about getting into college? You ever worried about getting into college or getting married? Do you worry about making it home to heaven? The same God who was with the Israelites keeping the promises that He made to Adam and Abraham has promised to care for His children and see them safely home to heaven. God even tells His children not to worry. If you are God's child by faith in Jesus Christ, He says to you, do not worry about what you will eat, drink and wear. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Children, youth, young adults, adults for that matter, learn this lesson from Israel's history. God is trustworthy. Learn this lesson from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God is trustworthy and worthy of our faithful obedience. God commanded Moses to take a census, and he obeyed that command with the help of Aaron and the men who had been chosen. Let's turn now, consider our second point, the census. Read Numbers chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Numbers chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named. And on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the numbers of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. As the Lord commanded Moses, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. Now, one of the first things that we should notice about these verses is the immediacy with which Moses and Aaron obeyed the Lord's command. In verse 1 of this chapter, we learn that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month. Now notice when Moses and Aaron carried out that command. Verse 18 tells us, on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together. Moses and Aaron immediately obeyed. Too often we delay in our obedience. And that, that can be dangerous. We should learn from Moses and Aaron's example here. We should endeavor to obey all the way and right away. Verses 20 to 24 detail the outcome of the census. The counting of each tribe is recorded in a kind of rather formulaic fashion. The name of the tribe is stated. The essence of the command, in other words, uh, those who were to be listed, is restated. And then the number is given. So read, let's read an example of this. Read verses 20 to 21. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Now a report... For each tribe is given in a similar fashion, with the names and numbers being different for each tribe. As I said, Reuben had 46,500 men who were able to go to war. If you look down at verse 23, you'll see Simeon had 59,300. you look at verse 25, you'll see Gad, 46,650. Verse 27, Judah, 74,600. Verse 29, Issachar. 54,400 verse 31 Zebulun 57,400 verse 33 Ephraim 40,500 verse 35 Manasseh 32,200 verse 37 Benjamin 35,400 verse 39 Dan 62,700 verse 41 Asher 41,500 verse 43 Naphtali 53,000 400. Now, verse 46, you'll notice there, it gives us the total amount of those who were listed and who were able to go to war, 603,550. Now, a couple of things need to be said about these numbers. Modern day readers look at these numbers and say to themselves, now those are nice, round, neat numbers. They appear to be round to the nearest 100 or 10. Those can't possibly be the actual numbers. And my response is, they can be the actual numbers. But you're right, they are very neat. Uh, The fact of the matter is, they probably are rounded to the nearest 10 or 100. And that does not mean that the text is inaccurate or false. Uh, it, It simply means they rounded for ease of reporting. In fact, we, we do this kind of thing all the time in our, our lives today. We round things off for ease of reporting. So for example, if I were to tell you that a couple of years ago I read Steve Wellem and Peter Gentry's book, "Kingdom Through Covenant," and that it was 700 pages long, I would be giving you an accurate report. I would be giving you an accurate report, even though the book was actually 716 pages long. If you thought to yourself, "There's no way that that book was 700 pages long, you went to the bookstore and you picked up the book, and you looked inside when you saw that it was 716 pages long, you wouldn't say to yourself, Mike lied to me. He said that book was 700 pages long, but it's really 716 pages long. You wouldn't think that. No, you would think to yourself, I guess he really did read a 700 page book. I'm surprised. I'm shocked. But he did it. Yeah. The numbers probably are rounded, but they're also accurate. Now, there's something else that we need to recognize about this census. There are over 600,000 men who can go into battle for Israel. It's astounding. And and this does not include uh, women and children in the number of the people of Israel. Which means that at this point, the people of Israel were probably somewhere between two and two and a half million people in the wilderness of Sinai. That is a massive amount of people that God is single-handedly sustaining in a deadly desert. If the people of Israel should have known something about God, it should have been that he powerfully provides for them. If, if they should have known something about God, they should have known that he was keeping his promises to Abraham to form a great nation with descendants as numerous, stars in the sky. Now, I kept passing over something that should smack us kind of in the face as we read. We are two years removed from the Exodus, and there were over 600,000 men who could go into battle for Israel. We're only two years removed from the Exodus, which means that it's highly unlikely that the number of 600,000 men of war has dramatically risen or fallen since that time especially since exodus chapter 12 verse 37 tells us that about 600,000 men walked across the Red Sea on dry ground it seems clear to me that this number has not dramatically risen or fallen since the exodus think about an army of 600,000 men it is not an insignificant army and this army was afraid of the armies of Egypt and God defeated the armies of Egypt without the men of war having to raise a single sword to fight them. How strong is our God? And how strong should our faith be in Him? And think about the arc of the book of Numbers too, right? The people of Israel, Numbers is meant to, to chronicle the journey, Israel's journey from the Sinai wilderness to the promised land for conquest. They're supposed to go and fight. This census should have encouraged and strengthened the faith of the people of Israel. Upon hearing this report, they should have immediately thought to themselves, God has protected us, He's provided for us, and He has prepared us for this journey and this conquest. He has shown Himself faithful, and we should be faithful to Him. This book would also have lessons for subsequent generations of Israelites too. They should have looked back and seen how God's faithfulness toward His people in the past and be encouraged and trusted Him for their future. The Lord even set aside a whole tribe within Israel to encourage the faith and faithfulness of Israel. And that's the tribe of Levi. You might have noticed that they don't actually appear in the census, and that's because the Lord determined they were not to be included. Uh, Read Numbers chapter 1, verses 47 to 53. Numbers 1, verses 47 to 53. Here we learn about the Levites. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. The Levites, you see, they were to be the religious leaders of the people of Israel. Uh, They were charged with helping Israel to love the Lord. Uh, They weren't called to do battle against foreign nations. They were called to do battle against unbelief within the camp. They were called to do battle for the hearts of the people of Israel, for their holiness. And that is why their duties were centered around the tabernacle. This was an incredibly important calling in the life of the nation. And that was obvious from when Moses first set apart the tribe of Levi for this task. You may remember that calling, that ordination from Exodus chapter 32. Moses, he was up on the mountain talking with God. And while he was up there, the people of Israel, they had formed a golden calf. Moses, he came down to the camp and asked the camp, who is on the Lord's side? And then he tells the men who have gathered around him, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, what the Lord has commanded. He tells them the Lord has commanded the Levites to search out and find those who are committed to idolatry. They were commissioned to find those who were not on the Lord's side and put them to death. The Lord relented from wiping out all of Israel, but he did not relent from punishing those who were committed to open rebellion and idolatry. And from that point forward, the Levites were called into God's service. And here we're told that they were to care for the tabernacle, its furnishings, and all that belonged to it. In specific, they were to carry the tabernacle and all that belonged to it on the journey. Set it up when they came to a stop and camp around it. The Levites were to warn Israel against idolatry and encourage them to worship the one true God. They were priests responsible for Israel's worship. They were called to love the Lord and to teach Israel to love the Lord. Not only that, but they were to remind the people of Israel not to take the Lord lightly. They would go to battle for the Lord against his own people if any outsider came near. As one commentator pointed out, they were to put anyone to death if they ignorantly or arrogantly approached the Lord's tent. The Levites served to protect the people from the Lord. So that the wrath of God would not come upon the congregation of Israel. And what all of this tells us is that God's presence with His people is real. And that His presence could be really dangerous if the people of Israel did not understand and appreciate His holiness. This tells us a number of other things too. God's people may not approach God on their own terms. In his book entitled Engaging with God, David Peterson rightly observes that the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. When man sinned against God, he was thrust out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And God set angels with flaming swords at the gates, the entrance of the Garden. The Levites now stood in the place of those angels. Our holy God cannot stand sin in His presence. And sinful man cannot stand in His presence. When God designed the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, He designed it with a series of barriers preventing entrances and access without the necessary sacrifice. The tabernacle, God's earthly dwelling place with His people, was an incredible blessing. It reminded His people that He was with them. But it was also a reminder that he was with them. That he was not like them. He was pure, perfect, and holy. And they were not. The good news of the Bible is that God has made a way for his people to dwell with him. He has torn down the barriers that were once erected and now all May make their way to the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. No longer are God's people threatened by the swords of the Levites at the tabernacle or the flaming swords of the angels at the garden gate. Now we can come directly to God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, He he lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Unlike every other human being who has ever walked this earth, Jesus was without sin. When he died on the cross, he endured the flaming sword of God's wrath for sinners like you and me. God's wrath broke out against Jesus so it wouldn't have to break out against us. If we turn from our sins and place our faith In Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. If we believe that Jesus lived the life that we have not lived, died the death that our sins deserve, and was raised from the grave in victory over them, we have peace with God. And a place among His people, the privilege of being counted, numbered, as one of His children, Friend, if you are here this morning, if you not put your faith in Jesus Christ, He is the Savior. Come to Him. Believe in Him. And you have peace with God. And if you want to know more about what it means that you have access to God's throne, and that He can be your Father, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important or more glorious than this good news that Jesus has made a way to God and that we are not in danger of facing God's wrath if we put our faith in Him. Let's turn now and consider our third and final point, the camp. We're in Numbers chapter 2 now. Read Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Now Numbers chapter 2 is primarily concerned with the arrangement of the camp and the order in which it's to set out on its journey. Remember, the book of Numbers chronicles the journey of the people of Israel from the wilderness of Sinai to the plains of Of Moab that means that the people of Israel are going to pick up their camp travel for a while and then stop for a while now given that two to two and a half million people are making this journey there is going to need to be some order to this expedition and our God is a God of order Uh, this is incredibly practical and loving of God to give these crisp clear and careful instructions to his people now many of you have moved before Uh, some of you have moved several times and though i wish it weren't the case some of you will move in the future Uh, moving is incredibly stressful and too often chaotic Uh, we lose track of what is in what box and what box goes in what room and uh, what should go in the back of the truck versus what should go in the front of the truck The logistics can be challenging, so we label things. We try and get them in their right places. And all of that is difficult. If that's not stressful enough, think about the challenge of being patient and gracious to fellow family members in the midst of a move. Our own personal experience of moving tells us that it is a difficult thing. Now think about moving at least 2 million people all at once. It is important to have a plan. And the Lord graciously provides it in this chapter. Numbers chapter 2 verses 3 through 32 describe how the camp is to be arranged. Where everyone's tent was to be located and what order they were to set out. And I've provided what I hope is a a useful diagram in the bulletin of the arrangement of this camp. The the actual arrangement is probably a bit more square. But you'll see why I've chosen this particular diagram in just a moment. The description begins in the east toward the sunrise of verse 3. And notes that this is the first group of three tribes headed by Judah to set out first, verse 9. So read Numbers chapter 2, verses 3 through 9 now. Numbers chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies. The chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab. His company as listed being 74,600 those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar, being Nathanael, the son of Zuar, his company, as listed, being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun, being Eliah, the son of Helon, his company, as listed, being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first... On the march so judah leads uh, the people of israel out as they begin on the march and perhaps this is an indication a sign and signal pointing to us that from the tribe of judah would come the savior he would lead us home well verses three through nine are pretty formulaic for what will follow the description of the camp moves from east and those tribes will set out first then to the south verse 10 and those tribes will set out second verse 16 but then there's something of a break there Breaking the action in verse 17. Read chapter 2, verse 17 now. The tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps as they camp, so they shall set out, each in position, standard by standard. Now I want to come back to this verse in a little bit. I want to come back to this break because there's a few interesting and significant things happening in this break. But for now, just note that the tent of meeting sets out with the Levites. Now, on the other side of verse 17, beginning in verse 18, the formula picks back up again with the western side of the camp, verse 16, setting out third, followed by the northern side of the camp, verse 25, setting out last, verse 30. So just to recap, east goes first, south, second, Levites, and tent, west, third, and north, fourth, or last. Now, the diagram on your sheet gives away what i've been trying to describe in words god's house and those who care for it are not assigned a number or a direction in the text so what we as readers should notice about verses 3 through 32 is that the text does not say east first south second tent and levites third west fourth and north last or fifth know that the tent and the camp of the levites are not assigned a direction or a number. And there's a reason there's no number or direction given to the tent of the Levites. And that's because God is not in line. He is at the center with His servants attending Him. Like the great king that He is, He is at the center of the camp, the center of the march. He is in the center of His people. Even the very arrangement of the camp and the pattern of their march, God designed to communicate what His position should be in the life of the people of Israel. Their lives were to revolve around him, flow out from his gracious love. And to a certain degree, in these two chapters, the people of Israel well reflected that through their obedience to God. Now I skipped over this at the end of chapter 1, but let's look at Israel's obedience now. Read Numbers chapter 1, verse 54. Numbers chapter 1, verse 54. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now skip down to the end of chapter 2. Take a look at the end of chapter 2. Read verse 34. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. The book of Numbers, it opened with the Lord giving his people a command. Interestingly enough, The book of Numbers actually closes by stating that the Lord has given His people a command to obey. But keeping our minds here, at the beginning of the book of Numbers, opened with the Lord giving His people a command to take a census. And chapter 2 closes with the people having fully obeyed. Now earlier, we noted how Moses and Aaron were faithful to immediately obey the command of the Lord. And I think that it is important for us to take note that the people of Israel were also obedient. In the book of Numbers we're going to see a lot of terrible disobedience and rebellion from the people of israel but we should be careful not to assume that they were always and at every point disobedient no they were a lot like us those who at times are faithful and obedient and sadly at other times are unfaithful and disobedient and this should be a comfort and a challenge to us god Dwelt in the midst of his people. He was with them as their God. He was committed to them when they were obedient and disobedient. The same is true for us too. Our God is with us. John's Gospel tells us that the eternal Son of God became flesh. He tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us. In First Corinthians, Paul tells us that the Son is still with us today because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is good news and a comfort for people like us. And it is also a challenge because like the people of Israel, we bear His name and display His character and faithfulness to the world until the end of the world. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. Numbers chapters 1 and 2 are part of a large scene of the people of Israel situated at the foot of Mount Sinai as they prepare to make their journey through the wilderness to the promised land of Canaan. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget the privilege of being counted as part of the people of God. Though only the men were counted in this census, we can be sure that every Christian, male and female, is counted as a soldier of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In Ephesians 6, every Christian is called to be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We wage spiritual war in the wilderness of this world, and we do not do it in our own strength or in the strength of our numbers, but in the strength of God. He is the one who gives life and strength to His people for all that He calls them to do. When He commands us to arise and be counted as His children, we should joyfully obey that call. When He commands us to arise and go and take His gospel to the ends of the earth and call others to join our march to the promised land of heaven by faith, we should joyfully obey that command. And He has given us that command. And all that He calls us to do, He will give us the grace to do. We should trust in Him, hear His commands, hear His call, be reminded that He is with us, and joyfully step out in obedience and faith, trusting Him. Let's pray together.